Hey everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm one of the hosts, Nicole Kyle, and you're going to get to hear um, a cutting room floor episode, which is something we do sometimes when uh, Nick wants to talk more about a topic, but has finished his allotted 50-minute sermon. So uh, in this particular episode, you're going to get to hear from our lead pastor, Nick Gibson, one of our associate pastors, Lloyd Biddle, and myself, and we're specifically talking after a sermon that Nick preached on June 23rd, 2019, relating to um, Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul references Christ tearing down the dividing wall of hostility. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about what that looks like for the church today, specifically as it relates to our local church. We hope that you find it helpful. I specifically hope that you find it encouraging and that it gives you hope for what God wants to do in his church today. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and to this Cutting Room Floor episode. Cutting Room Floor episodes are about subjects that a lot of stuff got left on the cutting room floor in the process of preparing sermons or talks that is important, and yet next week we're moving on to another passage. So this week we talked about um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and following, which focuses on Paul applying the gospel to... Christ making all of humanity one and reconciling them as one to the Father by one spirit and its implications for all the divisions of humanity that are supposed to be made obsolete in the death and resurrection of Christ. So I have with me um, Nicole Kyle and Lloyd Biddle. And because you can't necessarily tell from the tone of our voice, our ethnic and personal backgrounds, we're going to share them in case you don't know. So mm-hmm. I am, uh, I'm 42, so I'm like a Gen Xer. I'm generally called white, but I come from a Southern European and Northern European background. So I grew up in a white multicultural home, though not a multi-ethnic home in that sense. Mm-hmm. And also your mother was an immigrant. And my mother is a first-generation immigrant, right? Mm-hmm. And my father's family literally goes back to the Mayflower. <laughs> I'm a descendant of uh, the, the guy who was the, I can't think of his name right now. He was the, like the mayor of, of Plymouth Colony, not Massachusetts Bay Colony, Plymouth Colony. By, mm-hmm. His name's John Bradford or something. So mm-hmm. I can't remember right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm Nicole, and I'm a millennial. <sighs> Sometimes proud of it, sometimes not. Um, I'm, so I'm 28. Uh, my mom, her parents were English, German, Irish. Her mom came to the U.S. from England, but her her dad, my grandfather, was German and Irish. Um, and then my dad was an immigrant. He came to the U.S. from Mexico. And my <clears throat> entire family on my dad's side still lives in Mexico. And... Uh, And so when you look at me, I look just like the average white American, but I grew up in a multicultural home um, in a couple of different ways. That really shaped me in probably ways that'll come up in this conversation. Hopefully. Cool. So I'm Lloyd Biddle. I was born in 1964, which the sociologists say is on the (laughs) cusp of Gen X and baby boomers. And so I, I think I identify in some ways with both. Um, groups of people. Uh, I am African-American with a a somewhat different 
a religious background than most African Americans, mm-hmm. in that I was raised uh, Catholic by a mom who was a Baptist. So really strange. I won't get into that that story. Um, but uh, and so I, I, I grew up in Chicago in a very large city uh, in a parish that used to be Irish German at a time when uh, there was uh, what was known as white flight in Chicago. So that the neighborhood I grew in became all black when prior to that it was Irish German. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, so that's kind of my uh, my background. Also, may I just make a suggestion, if any of what Lloyd just shared piques your interest, uh, his testimony is on our podcast. If you go way back to some of our earlier episodes, and we'll try and link it too. Um, it's, it's just a really encouraging story to listen to, and you'll get to hear some more of what he just talked about now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and Lloyd, your family goes back to Mississippi. Yeah, so both. And they came north in the Great Migration. They came north in the Great Migration. My my dad's folks probably came to um, up this way in the 30s, and then my mom's folks came in the 40s, and their families were both sharecropping families in uh, the Delta in Mississippi. And your dad served in World War II. My father was a World War One. My father as World War Two that his father served in World War One. And so both of my um, parents or well, my father and his father both have um, military background. Yeah. Sweet. Okay, so that's kinda our backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So okay, so I said fifty minutes worth on Sunday or more, I guess. Um are there, is there any place in particular you guys want to dive in? Yeah, Nick, you talked a little bit about how um, our default uh, kind of value is hatred of the other. And you, you spent a good time, I thought, laying a good t- case where all of us have a tribe of one sort or another. And we are tempted to see the world as being inside our tribe and outside. And if you're outside of our tribe, there's a tendency for us to see you as the an enemy and that that is kind of the root of some of our problems mm-hmm. um and i think that's true whether we're in the church or out of the church mm-hmm. uh, we have to deal with that reality yeah yeah something that's kind of interesting to me is that in in culture right now we it, secular and christian there's a lot of talk about reconciliation but there yeah. also is this trend or fad to talk about the people in your life as your tribe again uh and i think there it's it's interesting because a lot of people are saying oh we should we should break down walls we should have these better relationships with other people and those same people will say this is my tribe and i think there's some there can be some danger Mm -hmm. in that kind of thinking that uh like these are the people that you're they're like you're ride or die but and you're so tight-knit and you can what's what's the word nick that you talk about uh virtue signal Mm -hmm. You can virtue signal that you want to be really open, but the reality is you are actually functioning with a perception of you've got your tribe and you're not going to let other people into it. Yeah. And um. Yeah. It. It. I think there's some danger in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons why. Well, one of the reasons why we do the things that we think are moral even when our stomachs want to do something else is Mm -hmm. because we believe that those things are transcendently moral, right? Mm -hmm. And those things are part of our cultural identity. Our morality tends to be really strongly interwoven with our cultural identity. 
And so when other people don't do those things, we don't just go, oh, that's just folks with a, you know, folks, different strokes for different folks, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We don't really feel that way. We, we're, cause we don't feel like we can do what they're doing. And we, if we did what they were doing, we would say, that's horrifically irresponsible. You can't do that. You're letting everybody else down. You're not living up to the requirements on your life. And so it's, it's angering because you're kind of like, I can't do that. Why can you do that? Just because mm-hmm. well, you're a different culture. That's not right. And so it's very difficult not to instill more broadly in our cultural identity, moral conviction. And so when somebody says, hey, these are cultural differences, we have to, quote, get past them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you feel pressured publicly to say, oh, of course, we'll get past them. But in your heart, you were like, Bull, I've been living up to this stuff my whole life. I'm not going to like say it's okay for right and so I think I think that in order for different groups to get along, one of the first things that has to do is what Lloyd brought up is you've got to understand human what yeah. a human being is. Mm-hmm. If you get Christianity is really strong on this idea that if you get your anthropology wrong, if you don't know what a human being is, in the condition we are in, fully bearing the image of God, really twisted up with sin and selfishness, and what that naturally produces. If you don't get that right, nothing else will be right. Your sociology won't be right. Yeah. Your theology won't be right. Your politics won't be right. Your schooling methodologies won't be right. Literally mm-hmm. nothing will be right. Mm-hmm. And then how do you reconcile and grow and knock down the walls and come together. You can't really do it. All you end up with is fine sounding rhetoric that never gets you anywhere. Well, yeah. And I, and you kind of, another thing you talked about that I've, I've personally found convicting, uh, was when you were talking about, um, like memes that we post mm-hmm. on social media or on our Facebook page or whatever about like, uh, values that we personally hold Mm -hmm. that we think are we're trying to like teach people around us to change their perspective but it doesn't ever actually do that like Mm -hmm. the nice sounding rhetoric that you were just talking about hate is not a family value right Mm -hmm. everybody agrees with that and everyone disagree with what amounts to hate Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i i found it at one point you said something about like our efforts to dissolve hatred oftentimes are just creating more of it. Oh yeah. And I think I see that in, and it, I mean, that's part of the, like why, why social media is dangerous because you just live in an echo chamber and why all the algorithms mm-hmm. of what comes up on your news feeds and your Twitter feeds, like that's, that's just adding to that because you're only seeing the posts that you already agree with. And so when mm-hmm. someone posts something about, whether it's about uh, migrant children in poor situations or if it's about abortion or whatever it is and you already agree with that all it's doing is building up inside of you more of the feeling you already have which probably is some form of enmity with other people even if you're not seeing it that way and i i can look at that and hear that from the sermon and think well i don't really do that like i don't engage in twitter fights and facebook battles because i'm more sophisticated than that, whatever. Well, but I'm doing it in conversations with friends. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it when I talk to my husband and I just am angry about something and I just talk about it with him. And like, it's just feeling more anger inside of me. It's not actually 
changing my heart towards those people. It's not actually persuading somebody else to change their opinion. It's just yeah. building more of it inside of me. Yeah, th- I mean, we have a word for that. It's The word is demagoguery. It's when you sculpt your language to assume all of your conclusions in it and therefore speak in such a way as to socially pressure other people to agree with you right. without allowing the conversation to enter into the realm of argument. Mm-hmm. You'll never yeah. submit your mm-hmm. views to argument or mm-hmm. other people's perspectives, really. You'll hide all your conclusions in your premises and say something that it feels culturally or socially impossible to disagree with. And so you'll either shut people up or you'll get people who are very afraid to be isolated to agree with you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you can see this in preachers sometimes. Mm-hmm. People like Richard Dawkins and the New Atheists use this kind of rhetoric all the time to intimidate religious people. You see it in religion, or in political discussions sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes. Nearly all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, for example, I think we're just a couple days from the first democratic um, debate, debate. Mm-hmm. and everybody else speak for 30 seconds to two minutes. And so part of that is that's really all you have time for is demagoguery because there's no time to construct an argument. Right. Mm-hmm. But there is a longing I think for people because if you actually look at the podcast world, long form podcasts, podcasts of over an hour are huge. Yeah. Mm. If the people talking are interesting. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I think that the reason I bring this up is I think it's it, it goes back to what Lloyd mentioned initially, that we have to understand the human heart and we have to see it in ourselves. Like I could have easily sat through that sermon and felt self-righteous because I've just made the way I'm using demagoguery more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's not, and it's not different. It's just a different platform that I'm doing it in. Yeah. And I have to see that before I can change that in my life. Yeah, and the more it happens, I think, culturally like that, I, I see it when I do counseling because husbands mm-hmm. and wives start to talk at each other like that. Yeah. And mm-hmm. almost as bad, parents start to talk at their children like that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's extremely detrimental in parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and friends and just people talk like that. And it's really, uh, it's really unhelpful, mm-hmm. you know, and it's hard to be other than that. In sermons, it's very tempting to be demagogic because nobody else is talking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes you'll see me do like dialogue preaching where I'll be, I'll say something and I'll be like, well, you might say this. Part of that is an attempt to submit this, my statement to argument that I know someone would make and to show my work. Like I was doing a math problem. Mm-hmm. For that reason. Yeah. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you uh, brought up in the sermon that I hadn't, th- I, I just hadn't thought about in that way before, but I also found to be challenging is when you're talking about letting go of our cultural achievements mm-hmm. and how challenging that is. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that and then we can. And whether or not you should even do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So as I was reading through this first part of the passage, um, the Apostle Paul uses the word flesh three times. Once he says, you who are Gentiles by flesh or by birth is how it's usually translated. 
meaning your race, your culture, your language. You just were Gentiles. That's just what you were. And because of that, you were far away and you've brought, been brought close in Christ. But then he gets to the Jewish people and he says, um, they call themselves the circumcision. And then he says, done in the body with the hands of men. The word body there is flesh, done in the flesh mm-hmm. with human hands. And what, he, what he's saying, now it's, that's a really interesting way to refer to it because the Apostle Paul is a Jew. He is part of the circumcision. He believes that the law of God is perfect. He says that in the book of Romans. Well, right? He, he doesn't believe that there's nothing to Jewish history. right? He believes you can only make sense of the gospel in Jewish history. And yet, the way that the Jewish people were holding on to that as a kind of identity and cultural achievement, we are the circumcision, not you. Mm-hmm. And the way they saw circ- this circumcision done in their bodies and their flesh as the fundamental distinction of their possession of that divine gift mm-hmm. was fundamentally wrong in two ways. One, they had actually forfeited the gift in thinking about it that way. Mm-hmm. Right? Jesus is always saying, you're not really being Jews. You're Jewish, but you're not being Jews. You're adding all these human commandments. You're not living the heart of the law. You're missing the law of God. And they were also missing that the law was to be a blessing to all people, right? All nations through Abraham were supposed to be blessed. And instead they were saying, no, you're out there and we're in here, right? And so as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, this is not a racial thing of the flesh that is being put aside in the flesh of Christ, This is their cultural sense of the cultural achievement and the achievement of their people that they believe came from the divine law of God. So this would be, the the circumcision would be the most unmovable cultural identity rooted in the highest possible idea that this is our cultural possession and that it is a cultural achievement. And Paul's like, yeah, that's just part of the flesh. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's just kind of like, that's not immutable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to the extent to which you hold on to that and it cause, it sustains the divisions and enmities between people, mm-hmm. you're wrong. And so I have struggled mightily over the years with feeling like there are cultural achievements in my Italian heritage and in my British heritage I believe some of the greatest achievements in the history of the world and yet wrapped up in my Italian and Roman heritage and British heritage is a lot of destructive, oppressive human carnage as well. Mm -hmm. And so, and I feel sometimes when I interact in a city like Madison that is filled with intersectional progressive philosophies of interrelationship, it's, it feels like we want to completely annihilate one cultural identity in order to make room for the emergence of the whole of the wholeness of a, another cultural identity. Mm-hmm. And that feels, it feels like a lie. It feels like I would have to break apart in the integrity of my personhood and become two people by digesting a lie that I can't believe. And I just don't know what to do, right? Because... I, but I, but so I'm trying to, how do I appropriate this truth given the fact that I believe that that's, that is an insoluble issue. Right. Right. Lloyd, have you seen that same type of temptation or struggle or, um, in the African American community as well? I don't, 
I don't know that it works its way out in terms of in the sameness. So African-American people have this awkward history of being looked upon as inferior. Right. And so the history of African-American people is a struggle for their God-given humanity. Mm. And um, it certainly started with the institution of slavery. Right. But also then the struggle continues in Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. The struggle continues uh, when African Americans in large numbers migrate uh, to the northern cities and then are in competition with uh, ethnic Europeans for jobs and then there's segregation and all kinds of discrimination that they encounter. So our people are always struggling for uh, for dignity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're... Um, uh, when I when I think of um, European Americans, they don't have that burden. They don't, g- generally speaking, they don't have to come to um, to life uh, trying to justify the, uh, the merits of their people. Whereas African American people, uh, distinct from people from Africa and distinct from people from all other parts of the world, uh, ha- have this burden of having to justify their existence and so forth. So that's a, that's a, that's a deal. And that, that works its way out in some unhelpful ways in our people historically and, and in some helpful ways. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's how that um, challenge that Nick talks about works its way out for us is we got this baggage that yeah. we seem like we can't get rid of. And so, so then how do we think about uh, the history of our people in oppression and then the history of our people in terms of its achievement and its mm-hmm. uh, uh, its in improvements over over the last 50, 60 years for certain. Yeah, I feel like in progressive cities right now, the push is something like this. Um, African-Americans have struggled for their God-given dignity because they have been treated as though they were inferior inherently like they were too dumb incapable of producing great cultural achievements whereas white people and 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 we're trying to get rid of that narrative right Right. Mm -hmm. and then white people but here's the thing within progressive cities within a unthinking version of intersexuality intersectionality you get this idea the only way we can substantiate that truth is if we say about white people you have only ever achieved ever anything because you were more wicked than every other race yeah. Right. Right. And and that's part of certain wings of even the civil rights movement that like you see this in sort of like Nation of Islam. The reason white people achieved anything is simply because they're devils. Right. right? But I mean, people like James James Baldwin was like, yeah, that was I couldn't go with that. I, white people have been awful but when he in the in his book the fire next time he's he like a whole section he's sitting down with like some nation of islam folks and they're just like look the only way to make sense of our identity is to know that white people are devils all of them every single one of them and baldwin's like man that's just not true like right white people can be terrible but they're not all just devils like that's stupid and it right and so you get you get that kind of attitude but like that's I think that's what's creating some of the white defensiveness yeah. is this like, there is nothing good to be said about your history and your culture. You were devils and you are just more efficient at it 
like Nazis, and that's all there is. And the only reason even the West is wealthy is because of slavery. Only slaves produced wealth, not the miracle of markets that came out of Adam Smith, right? And so the problem with that is, is that it's demagoguery and you're asking people to accept something they know isn't really true, but that's partly true. Yeah, you were talking, mm-hmm. you, you started the sermon talking about how this is a complicated issue and we're trying to throw a simple solution at it and yeah. that's never going to be sufficient. So, yes. so into that then comes the gospel narrative, right? which says that all of us were created in the image of God, um, that God intended that we would be pure and perfect, but that we rebelled against him and we became uh, sinners and that every human being, whether their heritage is African, uh, Latino, European, whatever, um, is infected by this uh, sin uh, that they can't get rid of. Mm -hmm. And that explains how, on the one hand, we can do uh, amazing acts of charity and love and uh, great feats in technology and music, but at the same time be wicked murderers and within our own people groups, wipe out, uh, you know, scores of people. Yeah. And so we're, we're as, as humans who are both uh, in the image of God and sinners, we are capable of great, wondrous achievements as well as the worst uh, actions of character and the most debased behavior. Mm-hmm. And that, that mm-hmm. really is the theological uh, explanation for the problem that we have. So we're both. We're right. both, you know, wonderful people and the worst of people. And I think you know? what, like in, in a church setting, and I'll talk specifically about our church setting, what makes it so hard then in terms of actual practicality and functionality of trying to be a reconciled church yeah. mm-hmm. is that you have to see that in yourself yeah. and you have to. Like I, when yeah. you were talking, Lloyd, I was just thinking about like, yeah, but man, it is so hard when push comes to shove. And like, yeah. we are so quick to see and point out in the other cultures, the things that yeah. we don't like rather than what Jesus was telling us to do is see the plank in our own eye first. And yeah. that brings us to a place of humility that brings us back to seeing all of us in the, in through the lens of the gospel. But it is, it is hard to yeah. do that. Just yeah. as it's easier individually to see another person's faults mm-hmm. right, better right. than your own. That's mm-hmm. true culturally, too. Yeah. Correct, I can correct. look at black culture, and man, I'd be like, oh, man, I could write a paper on this. Right. And right. it's easy for Lloyd to look at white culture and be like, oh, dude, there's so much you don't see. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that Lloyd's comment is also getting at is one of the things that happens in the gospel is you have to recognize you can never adjudicate the past entirely. Mm. you can know that it was bad you can know the general shape of what happened Mm -hmm. so that it could change your attitude in the present but ultimately you have to come into the present understand human nature in the present the message of the gospel in the present and try to do something good true and beautiful in the present and i can still say i know enough historically to say i need to watch out in the present Mm -hmm. so one of the things i know for example from the past is one of the reason black people sometimes don't like saying this is really complicated is because if the if you're in power this is really complicated is a really good stall tactic right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. 
Martin Luther King said that in a letter from Birmingham jail. He's like, you know, you guys all say this is so complicated. We need to wait. Right. Till when? Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Yep. We don't know right now. Segregation is wrong. We can't figure that out. And so I, one of the things I've tried to do is say, okay, I don't believe we can adjudicate the past, mm-hmm. but I can also look to the past and see how people have misbehaved. And then what I can say is, I don't think it's right to treat me like I was a segregationist. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's right. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's right for me to know and for people to remind me that I'm not different than the segregationists. I'm the same human being. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And But that's true all for all of us because that segregationist is in Lloyd too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. There's nothing so predictable in cultural history as when an oppressed people gets power that they lay into the people that hurt them. You know, and so we got to figure out a way to be one in the church. Mm -hmm. But then one of the things I didn't talk much about the sermon, which probably should spend some of the rest of our time on here is once you accept the universality of human sin, the universality of our hatred and our enmities that Mm -hmm. were to were to be put at peace in Christ and that nothing in our race, ethnicity or even our cultural achievements can be a barrier of enmity then what Mm -hmm. how do we the human object of that work of christ actually achieve the oneness that is now our spiritual heritage yeah and i think that's the the big uh question of the times um uh, here in the city of madison I know um, many of the churches, especially the churches that we fellowship with, that are, uh, are monocultural, have been challenged by the times to rethink that and to figure out ways to embrace other folks, especially as the city of Madison becomes uh, more diverse. And so we're, we're asking ourselves, man, how do we go about being a church for all peoples? How do we go about living out the reality that there is no longer Jew or Gentile, and even the various separations within Gentiles are broken down by the gospel of Christ? Now now what? Now what does that look like? And um, it's been interesting to, to see, uh, you know, kind of the the tactical things that, that churches are doing, the tactical things that that we've done at High Point in, you know, the fact that you can have Manohar uh, here on staff, uh, preaching from time to time, the fact that probably over the time I've been here, um, uh, other than Nick, I've preached the most, and I'm an African-American man. The fact that my wife has led a worship team here since we got here, really, mm-hmm. in 2006. So we've we've certainly done some things. Um, the fact that uh, Nicole is is Mexican and is singing some songs both in English and Spanish. So there are there are things that are that are we're doing, and I think there's there's been fruit um, in that. Uh, the fact that we're partnering with two Latino churches that meet in our building, and and even going so far as to join uh, together in worship services, and and so there's there's these things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some fun things in schooling, partnering with oh, yeah. Marcio and Latino folks, and African Americans in the schooling stuff we're doing, I think has been cool. We've yeah. also participated in um, 
helping partner with a couple African-American churches yep. to make sure they can have a full-time pastor, which Absolutely. makes such a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. So like, yeah, we've been trying to, we're just trying to like engage in friendship and stuff. But I, I think, um, you know, as we've talked in house, there's been fruit, mm-hmm. but man, there's, there's still a lot much. of work to do. There's still mm-hmm. a lot of work to go. Yeah. There's still this thing that, that Nick uh, spoke about in his sermon that oh, I when, think I know what you're going to say. I'm so glad you're going to bring it up. <laughs> when people of color come, African-Americans, I think of Latinos, I see it most. I, actually, I see it in the yeah. people of Indian, Indian mm-hmm. descent, too. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little less uh, prominent with uh, um, uh, people from Chinese Asian-American backgrounds. Or, yeah. yeah. Uh, but at any rate, um, there's that deal. And so they come, and after two or three visits, uh, oftentimes they don't come back. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, um, so we're left to think through what what's next. Well, uh, yeah, and one of the with that one of the things you brought up, Nick, was that people will still feel excluded, even mm-hmm. when you don't think they should feel excluded right. anymore. Mm-hmm. And right. another point you made earlier in the sermon, and I, I think all of these things are connected, is that um, even when love doesn't produce a legal obligation, it still produces a moral obligation, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and I think all of those things were, are at play. I was, we were um, recently in Minnesota visiting uh, some of the, us on staff, we were visiting another church and they were rethinking a lot of the things in their worship services. Um, and one of the things they brought up was that every Sunday they have a moment to meet your neighbor and they give a, a question and they talk about it and they're like, we have had people leave our church because they hate this moment in the service. Like they're introverts. They don't want to talk to people. And they were talking about, should we, should we keep it or not? And one of their focus groups was specifically thinking about their services related to multiculturalism. And they said, Oh no, you cannot take this out of your service because this is the only time of the service when the white congregation talks to us as the non-white people who are coming into this service. And, and so it's just like all of that is at play that like feeling excluded, feeling like, like that probably isn't actually accurate that it's the only time someone who is Mm -hmm. of a majority culture is talking to the non-majority culture person, but Mm-hmm. Man, it still feels like it. So, Nicole, I'll, t- I'll give you an, uh, an example. This is two Sundays ago. It wasn't this Sunday, but the one before. Uh, my family was sitting. It was Father's Day. My family was sitting in a, a slightly different place near the back of the sanctuary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And right in front of me was uh, an African-American male, uh, probably in his late 20s. I had not seen him before. And, and uh, he was sitting in the aisle by himself. And it was totally... Um, uh, innocuous, not intentional. He, he just happened to come into second service where mm-hmm. it's a little lighter attendance, mm-hmm. and he sat in the aisle where nobody was there. Mm-hmm. And but my my family was right behind him, and there there is no natural place within our worship service right. to engage him. But right after the service, mm-hmm. uh, I was like, "Hey, my name is Lloyd. I'm one of the pastors here. Here's my wife Deborah. Here's my son Jason. Here's my son Jared." And the guy said, "Thank you so much." Mm-hmm. His name was Abe. Uh, Abe, if you're listening, come back and see us. Uh, he said, thank you so much. And I, I could just see it on his face that if I hadn't have said something and tried to reach out to him, he probably would have went right out into the lobby, right out to the door, and really never met anyone in the church. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we, we've, we've got systems to try to work on that. You know, mm-hmm. we've, got, we've got greeters at the front, 
Um, but there is something about what we do in the aisles, what we do to the stranger in the aisles, where we're going to have to. Uh, uh, Nick, Nick, when when Nick first came to the church, he talked about this a lot, and he got us. He talked about things like pray, pray for people right on the spot. Mm-hmm. He talked about you know don't go home and not meet people. He talked about take people to lunch that you just met, things like that, and that's the kind of uh, behavior that needs to happen if we're going to break some of this down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I want to push that. I just want email. Some of it'll just be, I'll say it in different words again, (laughs) but it's so important. Like this is the difference. Yeah. So if I go into a place where I know I'm not kind of the majority culture, yeah, I just, I naturally get, I'm going to feel a little ill at ease. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. I always feel like this in India when I go to on trips to India, Right. Mm-hmm. I'm a, still a celebrity. I'm the pastor speaking at the blah, blah, blah. And yet I don't know how to look like I want to talk to people. I don't know. What we're, like I'm just out. Right. And so when people feel that way, they just act closed off. And so if like a young African-American mm-hmm. comes in, right, you can't expect him to behave like Chris Pepler, who's been here 30 years and is a cheerleader. And like, she'll talk to you even if you don't want to talk to her. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. she's just perky and positive and ready to go and knows everybody knows you. That's just not true of visitors in general. Right. It's more not true of people of non-majority cultures in particular. And um, if we, if you don't talk to them, even though they might look like they're not looking to talk to you, mm-hmm. That's then true. Right, right. it's not going to happen. You have to literally just st- like, I literally say when people are walking away, Hey, can I say hi to you before you get out of here? Right. Just try that. Just be like, That's Hey, right. they're walking literally for the door. That's you right. Just go quick. Hey, can I just quick say hi to you before yeah. you get out of here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I ask them at least two questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If they answer the two questions and don't offer me anything more than a simple answer, then I'll be like, Hey man, I don't want to hold you up. It looks like you got to go somewhere or I'll, I'll just let them ease out of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I got the touch. If they respond more, then I'll ask them a third question or I'll maybe enter into a conversation. What I, I had a conversation with Erin just yesterday, and she's like, you know, Sunday morning is a great time to talk to small group leaders that I'm managing and, and helping, but I'm also connections. Do you want me talking to people leaving and just being in the lobby, or, or do I use this to... Because she's kind of split between the two, and I was like, Erin, you never sin against the golden nine minutes, ever. From when the, the benediction ends... The next nine minutes, if you consider yourself involved in ministry of any kind, you are looking for unconnected people and Mm -hmm. talking with them, starting with people of different ethnicities or races who look like they don't want to talk to anyone. That's the number one person you talk to. The faster they're headed for the door, the more not white they are, at least right now at mm-hmm. High Point Church. Mm-hmm. At a different mm-hmm. church, mm-hmm. at like Mount yeah. Zion, it might be like be a white different. guy. Right, that's right. right. That's yeah. right. But that's the, right. The, the minority person in this group right now who looks like they're going to leave right now, that's the person you talk to. If an African-American guy like Abe comes in here, sits down, doesn't talk to anyone, that should signal to us that 19 people need to talk to him before he gets to the door. And he should be invited to lunch at least three times. 
Like that's what, that's what's going to happen. And so when Lloyd says, you know, we've got these processes and we're doing these things. And then like, you know, like we're, our staff has different ethnicities on it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Our stage has accents and mm-hmm. ethnicities and genders and different ages. Like, I don't think it's the stage. I yeah. think yeah. 40, if 40% of our regular congregation believed it was their job to do hospitality in right. just the golden nine minutes. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that would do something real. Yeah, mm-hmm. Nick, I think I think you got a, a sermon. I think uh, in Ephesians, now that we're turning quickly towards practice, there, I think there's a little piece on hospitality. We might have to have you do that commercial because I think I think you're onto something. The issue is that we've got to connect with that that visitor, um, especially if they're people of color. But all of our visitors, we could do a better. We could do a better job. And I know if, if Aaron were here, she would say Amen to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I think if we're going to get further mm-hmm. as a church, I think it has to be in everyone's heart. Yeah. And you know, we've you and I have talked about this in Nicole and other staff about how churches that are very successful at growing in multi ethnicity, for a lot of those churches, that is actually like their number one thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I I chafe against that because mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, well, what about cultural engagement? And what about training leaders? And what about mm-hmm. evangelism? Mm-hmm. And what about, mm-hmm. right? And for those churches, they're trying to use multi-ethnicity as the golden habit that spins the flywheel of everything else, right? And in a city like Madison, that's a very valid attempt because much of what people don't like about Christianity is they think it's a way for white people to make themselves feel okay or whatever. But like, I've struggled with that, but like we, we're not doing enough of this. Like we're not there. We're not producing the results that it should produce. And like I've said before a number of times, love you you can only feel assured that you are practically loving other people when you find yourself constantly in the presence of people different than you yeah. who feel connected and at ease. Right. Mm-hmm. If they're like you, that's great and you can enjoy those relationships, but that is not evidence that you are growing in love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. I uh I want to say mm. something about that and I've I've shared this on the staff team before but I think it's worth sharing to listeners to know this. Um before coming and working here, I've been a part of a, a few other ministries that had a lot of conversations about racial reconciliation uh and about the power of the gospel in racial divides and um I always felt this sense of weariness um, when I was part of those ministries and, and honestly, a lot of hopelessness about it. Uh, and I remember one of the staff teams that I was a part of, we had the pastor of a multicultural church come to talk to our staff team about multicultural ministry. And he said, you know, you're never going to have a successful multicultural ministry if you don't have a multicultural life. If you don't, ever have relationships with people who aren't like you, you're not going to be able to minister to people who aren't like you. And that's what you were just saying, Nick, that mm-hmm. you you have to see that evidence of love and growth in your own life. You're not going to know that you're actually doing what God wants you to be doing if, in ministry if you're not doing that in your life. And yeah. um, I, there were there were staff people who, you know, I, I really cared about and respected, and but who were like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to 
turn my life upside down. That that was their perspective. And and that was just really hard and heavy and and felt painful for me to hear that. Um and so I, I had this sense of like, man, I just don't think this is possible. Like I don't see this happening. Mm-hmm. And then I came here and started working here. And what I saw was in the lives of the leadership of our church and our staff team. I saw people who were living multicultural lives, who had real friends, who didn't look like them, who didn't come from the same backgrounds as them, but who were real friends and they had real affections for each other. And uh, and then I started seeing that ways that that was impacting the church, even that even ways that maybe our congregation couldn't yet see. Mm-hmm. And it and it was the first time that I felt a sense of hope that this could be real. And uh, so I say that if you if you're an attender of High Point Church, that I I really believe that you should have hope, and you should be it should be something that should give you courage. That that I really do believe God is working, starting from our staff team and mm-hmm. hopefully impacting. And I believe impacting our congregation, mm-hmm. but I do really think that what you said, Nick, that it you have to see that in your own life and before we're going to see that in our church and in our church may be where it starts in your own life. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I have hope for our church in a way that I really didn't experience in previous ministries, which I am so grateful to God for that. He's choosing to do that in our church. Yeah. Even in small ways right now. (laughs) Yeah. I, I feel like, um, I don't feel super good about that for myself. You know, when I was in college, I lived a very multi-ethnic life. And I didn't have to. My college was really white. Um, but I did, like Lexi and I sang in a gospel choir. We toured in New York City. And my best friend was a Haitian immigrant. And it felt like a multi-ethnic life. At least black-white. It wasn't mm. very Latino. There weren't a lot of Latinos on campus. Um, but I, I didn't have family. I didn't, like, I. it felt like the way to adjudicate my life living multi-ethically worked because I was going to class with these people of other races. And so we could just do our homework together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I could, I played basketball. Vladimir played basketball. So we played basketball together. Right. And then you like get out and you start building a family and stuff like that. And the way life works, you end up going to a church. Well, is that church multi-ethic? Mm-hmm. You end up living in a neighborhood is that neighborhood mm-hmm. multi-ethic? Your mm-hmm. kids are going to the school. Is the school multi-ethic? Mm-hmm. And it sometimes it becomes harder to make that work. The only way I can think of to try to begin to push on that is if you think in terms of bonding theory, people socially gen- generally have three circles of people, right? They have like three to six close friends. They have seven to 15 decent friends. And then they have like 45 to 105 people they know, right? And I think you have to start with saying, okay, if I don't have a multi, another a person of another race or something that's in my super close friends, is it because there hasn't ever been one in the next circle out? So what you can do is you can say, okay, if I really want to live multi-ethnically, I can't go out and get myself a black best friend Mm -hmm. or a white best friend. Right. Right. What I can do is I can say, okay, are there people in my circle of 65 who are other races, ethnicities, Mm -hmm. cultures, Mm -hmm. right? And then are there some of those that I'm growing a natural affection for Mm -hmm. that can be in my 12? 
And then as I grow to know them better, are there people in that 12 that would it'd be great to have them in my three to six mm-hmm. and just keep working at that, right? Don't try to get people somebody right into your best friend circle. Just try to include people in increasingly closer concentric circles. And in some ways that might be the best you can do right now. But then sometimes it might come down to decisions of where to put your body. Mm-hmm. Right. So that you're around people different than you, I guess. Amen. And the challenges um, that Nick described are different depending on your background. And so as an African-American living in Madison, uh, living in Verona, uh, my neighbors are going to be white. And so unless I completely close myself off, I'm going to know some white people in my neighborhood. (laughs) And when I go to work at American Family at the time, when I first got here, most of my staff, folks who worked for me, were were white. And so it's a little easier to at least be in regular conversation. And that doesn't mean that so the challenge for me would be to move from having just people that are in that outer circle and moving them in the inner circle. Mm-hmm. That so that's been so my challenge is not so much having not having interactions with right. people that aren't black. It's it's inviting those people into an inner circle. So for me, um, that you know that that's why Nick Forster's pro- probably my best friend in the church. It stands to reason because we've been in the s- same small group for six mm-hmm. years, six seven years, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah. And tell me, Lloyd, if, if you don't just if you don't agree with this, sure. that's fine. But I, yeah. I think one thing too that I've I've recognized this in myself, and again, it's complicated for me because in a lot of ways I am just like most majority culture people, but yeah. also not quite. And but for me, I have found that at least when I am thinking of myself from a more minority perspective, mm-hmm. it for me I have to be willing to extend a lot of grace in those types of interactions with other people um, and know that and fight in myself a, a temptation towards like any sort of entitlement. Like I, I want, here's an example of that. I, um, Marcio, the pastor of Lighthouse Church, he was sharing about when he and his wife moved to their um, neighborhood in Middleton and He's, uh, he's Hispanic. He was mowing his lawn and his new neighbor didn't know that they were newly living there. And he's like, Oh, are you working for this new family? Not knowing he was talking to the owner of this new house mm-hmm. or of this house. He just straight asked, like, how much is he charging? Much is he you? Yeah. You're... Cause he was interested in hiring him. And Marcio was like, Oh man, you can't afford me. And just kind of laughed it off. And he said, yeah. he, I remember him saying, he's like, he wasn't trying to be it offensive to me he wasn't trying to Mm. hurt me like Mm -hmm. what i needed to do in that moment was just give him grace and Mm -hmm. that was very convicting for me and the guy was sufficiently mortified oh Mm -hmm. yeah he found out yeah but he i mean like i i just everything in me was like that's terrible that's horrible like how could he say that how could and he's like he didn't mean that and i Mm -hmm. i just had to offer him grace and i i just i think that was really important for my heart to hear that and to see that uh, anger in me and that prejudice in me, it's like, oh, wow, that is my first reaction. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. It, it may be tiring to feel, it is tiring. And I know Lloyd, you and mm-hmm. I have talked about this mm-hmm, before mm-hmm. to f- 
consistently feel like you're the one person who's not majority culture and that that's draining and if you've ever done if you've ever been overseas for an extended period of time you know what that's like the culture shock like nick when you talk about going to india it's just it's exhausting always being aware that you're the one person who's different yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. and so i think it requires an extra amount of grace to give to people when you are that person who is very aware that you're different that's well said and very true yeah any last words no good good discussion good discussion and um but we're this is kind of um, the parameters of where High Point Church is as we become more multicultural. Now it's, um, you know, how can we in our individual lives and some of our practices at church really begin to befriend and um, have relationships um, uh, beyond what might have been comfortable for us? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm probably going to talk a little bit more at this on Sunday because I was telling Nicole in the preaching schedule, this was the mm-hmm. week of, hey, if we're behind, we'll catch up here. But we're not behind. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, and I'm not going to step on Lloyd's passage for the next week. So I'll get a chance to talk a little bit more about this. But hopefully yeah. this has been helpful. Please, if you've listened to this, you found it helpful, please share it with someone, especially someone in High Point or yeah. in mm-hmm. the local church anywhere. Yeah. Um, but please feel free to let people know that uh, this was broached. Also, the sermon from Sunday, Nicole posted the first sermon, which was better than the second. And So um, listen to the audio. You yeah. can watch the video if you want, but the audio will be better. The audio will be better than the video, yeah. And so you might feel like sharing that with somebody would be helpful because there's some folks who would not think a conversation like this would happen at a church, that either it would be, we're trying to not be fall within being captured from conservative memes of slow down, wait, we can't, right? Or traditionally progressive memes of like, in order to lift someone up, we have to demonize somebody else and we have to extract reparations rather than looking for a mutually beneficial restitution of justice in the presence. Mm-hmm. And um, not that we know how to do all that. But Mm -hmm. we're going to take step one and then we're going to take step two and we'll get to step 12 after step 11 Mm. without allowing ourselves the stalling tactics of delay Mm -hmm. is kind of the goal. And take heart, have hope. Amen. Yeah. 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 All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.